Coming up next, the Booking provides a linear, traditional episode on poetry. Welcome to the Bookening. This is the fourth episode that we have done on poetry, but the first that is just going to be linear and traditional and bookening, like a bookening classic. This is just a hearty hail drink of of classic bookening brew that you mm-hmm. are about to imbibe today. Only we're talking about poetry. Poetry, a hard and complicated subject, one that we've tackled now three times. Last week, the epic bonus episode recorded at Brandon's house. Mm-hmm. There was food and drink and women. women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wine, women, and song, literally. Yeah. <laughs> Wine and women to talk about song. That was an episode, and you may have listened to that, and the incandescent Meredith was on, and she, she pressed Brandon with many questions. She did. And the lovely Anna was on, and she did not press Brandon with as many questions. She didn't press me with many questions, but she offended certain people. <laughs> she did, did, and we're going to talk about that. But we're back, and we're going to talk about poetry today. My name is Nathan Alverson, your humble and immediate host. Of course, we've got Brandon over there, the poet laureate of the bookening, I mm. dare say. Hey, but guess what? What's that? I'm here too this time. Yeah, Jake is here. Hey. All right, so let's get into it, guys. Poetry. I like it. We talked about it last week a little bit. I wasn't there. I don't even know exactly where to start, but let's start with the fact because we got some, we got some, shall we say, listener response on this. Yeah. Jake wasn't there. Jake's not responsible. I cannot vouch for anything. Jake cannot vouch. I've not listened to it even, so. Jake will, he, Jake is like the, the employers of Ethan Hunt in Mission Impossible. He will I can disavow either, yeah, all I will knowledge do. of. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny that. Yep. But our mission, which we are accepting. It's like Nick Fury. Yeah, it's like Nick Fury. Does Nick Fury disavow all knowledge of the Avengers? Uh, some of it. The whole point of the Marvelverse is that they're upfront about the fact that they're superheroes and oh, stuff. Oh, well, never mind then. Brandon. Ethan Hunt's better. Yeah. So the thing that we got a lot of pushback on last week is I want uh, Mrs. Chastain, I believe, said this. Yeah, blame I believe, Anna. I believe she was the one to assert this. But I we agreed with it. I agreed with it in the moment, at least. And then we kind of talked around it, but we never really came to a cohesive point of view. We didn't really come to a cohesive bunch of anything in that episode. I'll be the first to admit it was late. We were at Brandon's house. We were having a good time. I hope you enjoyed it. There's a reason I released it as a bonus episode and not an official part of the bookening tally of awesomeness. Anyway, oh, that's Brandon. He's a scholar baller reading Jake, pastor, master reading. You may have already done that. We, We may have already done that. But so... Uh, spirit days and days gone by, you know, pulling threads. Yeah, I do it to myself sometimes. Yeah. We made the, so Mrs. Chastine made, or maybe we made, I don't know, somebody made the assertion that women don't like poetry. We got a lot of grief for this, mostly from women. They're like, I'm shocked. We do like poetry. They took off their aprons and they, they marched out of the kitchen. <laughs> Took up and their volumes of Shell Still Silverstein. Grabbed their Shell Silverstein. Wow, you guys. <laughs> we need to coin a word. We need to coin like a portmanteau that has poetry and misogyny, like a posogynist, a uh, misogynistry. Mis- I love it. Misogynistry. That's yeah, great. This is, that'll be the name of this episode. Misogynistry. <laughs> but we need to decide do women like poetry? To hear them tell tell the story, they do. <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, we have to take that evidence into consideration. <laughs> Prove it to us. Listen, I'm just going to throw this out there. Yes. Okay. Everybody 
loves poetry in some form or another. Everybody loves poetry. Jacob, you're going to have to explain yourself, my friend. We were talking about this a little bit. You were introducing me to the idea, that, well, to what we were going to be talking about. We were filling about. you in on what happened yeah. last time a little bit before um, we started. And I don't know how I got off on this idea, but what occurred to me is that uh, I think poetry, we all would agree poetry fits on a, on a spectrum. Right. Of, on the one end, uh, the super elitist poetry that very few people can under, you have to have a PhD to be able to credibly pretend that you understand. You come yes, across that right? in a university publication or maybe in the New Yorker or something like that. Yeah, the trash understand. that the New Yorker publishes right. is poetry 98% of the time. 98%. Right. right. And then, and then on the other end, you've got pop songs, mm-hmm. right? You have folk poetry. Oh, baby, baby, how was I supposed to know? Yeah. Right. Something wasn't right. We talked about this idea a little bit, on, I think, on our first two poetry good. episodes, the idea of traditional or folk poetry versus mm-hmm. you know, sort of elitist poetry and, and the whole bunch of poetry that's in the middle. Right. Yes. But everybody listens to music and loves music. And the beauty of folk poetry, because it's for the people, it can, it tends to connect with people better and they tend to get it. It tends to resonate with them. So you're the kind of person that likes music, likes, likes songs, finds certain songs resonating with them. There's a, you know, that's poetry that's connecting with you on one level or another. And it can be really shallow and stupid pop, like what, you know, Hit Me Baby One More Time by mm-hmm. Britney, whoever wrote that song for Britney Spears. Or genius poetry, like Oops, I Did It Again by the same artist. Absolutely. Uh, Absolute genius. It, it takes PhD to understand the genius right. of that song. I don't know. I just wanted to start there by saying, okay, I think everybody on one level or another loves poetry. Everyone loves the, the materials is, of poetry. Everyone loves metaphor. I mean, even if it's just like, right. if you don't come inside right now, I'm going to kill you. Like metaphor, you know? Um, <laughs> not that somebody would love that. That was just the first thing that popped into my head. We all use metaphor all the time is my point in everyday life. So we, we all like rhythm. We all like theater. So I think it's the question. I think it's more a question of if there's a division in the sexes, what kind of poetry is more appealing to men? What kind is more appealing to women? Yeah. Well, I think when we say poetry, most people don't think of, I mean, but I challenge that assumption. I think that's a I, 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 bogus assumption. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think, but you think it, he's right to challenge the assumption? I, I agree with him that poetry is everywhere. Poetry is everywhere. Yeah. Well, what he was going to say is that when we think of poetry, we don't think of songs, pop songs, traditional folk. Yes. Poetry. If we're expanding the we category, because we're smart. But if I just say poetry, if I say women don't like poetry. What people assume I mean is not that women don't like Britney Spears or don't like Taylor Swift. What they assume I mean is that women don't like the sonnets of Shakespeare or women don't like Wallace Stevens or women don't like that's, that's, that's what in the common parlance of our times people would, under, <coughs> people would understand me to be communicating if I said, yes, women don't like poetry. Women don't like to look at verse written down in a book or in a magazine with meter and rhymes and stuff like that. They don't like that as much as men. Now, that still may, might be a false thing to say. Yes. But I think that that's what, that's what people would assume I was saying. That is what they would assume you were saying. Right. Yes. That is, by saying what I said, I wasn't trying to say, to set up the idea that men only like the sophisticated elitist end and women only like the stupid illiterate pop end. Right. No, yeah, exactly. Jake was not saying that. And I wasn't saying that you were trying to say that. We're good. Nobody's trying we... to say anything, really, on <laughs> right. the podcast. We're just trying to all get along here. Yeah, <laughs> and we've succeeded in saying nothing so far. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Easy there. <laughs> that would be interesting if the elitist 
academic poetry that most people think you're talking about when you say that women don't like poetry is now actually only mostly read by men professors and elitists who think that they are not patriarchal in what they are doing. And yet participating in a form of patriarchy by reading poetry that women don't read. Yeah, that'd be pretty interesting. <laughs> I agree. Wouldn't that be fascinating? <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> and I think it might be kind of true. Yeah, I think it might be. Because although... that might be where I got my presumption that women don't like poetry is the fact that I, I, th I think about the grad programs I was in, the professors I had who all studied some form of poetry, they were usually men. Right. A lot of male professors would teach the poetry classes. A lot of the poetry students would be men. I mean, you have your exceptions. Right. Well, the incandescent Meredith, who was very embarrassed to hear her voice on the podcast really? last week and said, do I sound like that? But yes, she, you do, Meredith. Yes, you do. We have to hear that voice all the time, honey. <laughs> she asked me how I was going to prove in this episode that women don't like poetry. I just said, there's no way I could prove it. I mean, anecdotally, it would be the only real evidence that I have of that. And that's the only evidence I have, too, but maybe that maybe it's just not true. Maybe. Well, we certainly got a lot of anecdotal evidence to the contrary. Yeah, and so I think maybe one of the best responses we had came from one of our fans. Mm -hmm. Should we mention her? Kelly, yeah. Yeah, Kelly, who pointed out that maybe it's not – so in her experience, it's not – the divide isn't between men and women. It's between almost everybody who just says that they don't really understand poetry. Right. Right, and so that then still begs the question, what is poetry? So maybe – Maybe that's just a bad question. Do men or women like poetry better? Well, I think we were getting at something. I'll, 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 re I'll retract the statement. Sure. Women, you love poetry. You're great. You're wonderful. Women are women. Some of my best friends are women. I think I was circling something in my brain that I wanted to get at, which is that I think a lot of times, generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, um, <laughs> Men are more... I resent having to qualify anything that I'm right. saying. I resent in any way. How I really tell? want you to know that. What was my tell? I thought I, I was playing for I a game of poker here. I'm just... I'm, I'm just... surprised. I think a lot of times... Not always. <laughs> a lot of times... I think a lot of times in, the, in, in a relationship, men are the romantic. Now, that's not the same as being the sentimentalists. Women are, by and large sentimental about oh this is where jack this is where we first met famous line from a movie well, of my childhood women are sentimental about things but men are the ones who sort of connect the relationship a lot of times to the transcendent See i'm thinking of a lot of the relationships i know mm -hmm. and that's pretty much the way it is with them it's yeah. the way it is with mine it's well it was okay with my but, parents but listen guys and my dad's we have to question the sample size here if you were to just take as a broad sample size say our church body. Right. Yes. The, if you were to pick the top, the, the five guys mo who would like poetry the most. Yeah. Right. Probably three of them are in this room, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's be a little fair about the sample size here and about the kinds of relationships that we might have that might be different. Than yeah. Me. The fact is I, I am going to tend to make friends with men that like poetry because that's who I am. Right. I, I will fully admit that. No. Now, that being said... Not every man's like me, Nathan. I, I've met a lot of men. I've met my share of women. I can think of very few women that I've met that would... I mean, I've met women that like like the Shel Silverstein, like things that they can read to their kids, for example, A.A. A. Milne, even like uh, James Whitcomb Riley or Ogden Nat, you know, something kind of fun. But as, as far as people that just like what I guess we've... I'm not quite sure I agree with the label, but what we've in this podcast been kind of defining as the, the, the elitist school of poetry, 
I've never met a woman that actually likes that stuff. I've met my share of men. No, I'm not I don't say- like the elitist school. What's that? I don't like the elitist school of poetry. What well, is the elitist school? Well, the way that we defined it was the kind of stuff that you need a PhD to be able okay, to pretend that you're having guard stuff, the sort of stuff that this guy can. Yeah, I've, I've never met anybody that Yorker. likes that. All I know is people Only that people who that. pretend to like but, it. Okay, the yeah. only people that I've met that really like Shakespeare's sonnets, that really like Wallace Stevens, that really like I have not really met a woman in my life. I'm sure there's like 4,000 of them listening and they're screaming at me and throwing their phones. Well, probably. But they also have to realize Let's, that- be, let's be honest. The vast majority of our listeners probably are women. Yes. So well, if, it, you're, if you're going to ask me who reads novels, if you're asking me who listens to the booking, I'd say women. And yet, isn't it interesting? Isn't it worth noting at least? Without trying to make any kind of cheap generalizations, isn't it at least worth noting that I've met a lot more men that like old school- what you would call the craft of poetry. Yeah, like the... Understand, I'm not making any kind of definitive statement here. I'm just describing my and This is something that, Na- Nathan, we, we've talked about this, and it was just kind of an off-the-cuff conversation we've had. Right. Where we thought, well, it does seem to be the case. And I can think of a few women who would be exceptions. I, I should also say my sample size is very much skewed by the woman that I am currently in love with and getting married to. And <sighs> mine too. I tried to read her a poem when we got engaged. Actually, Brandon texted a poem of, I, I don't remember, poem, what was it? It was um, Langston Hughes. Langston one Hughes. One of my favorites. Yes, one of your favorites. I tried to read it to Meredith. Now, Meredith, I think she'd be the first to admit, just not the kind of personality that's really into that kind of stuff <clears throat> at all. We, you should also tell people that Meredith, not exactly anti-intellectual. No, Meredith's smart. Like we said last week, well, she'll, she'll read that Thomas Aquinas and she'll see the poetry in Thomas Aquinas or something like that. She's yeah, not like, can... get away from me with your poetry. No, and people it. have last week's episode. She kept me on my toes. Yeah, anybody that. anybody that knows Meredith knows that she's pretty intimidatingly scary smart, actually. Right. She was pushing. And very well read. And yeah. pushing in good ways. Right. Love you, Meredith. But yes. she's not into poetry. She's um, not. And that's because she's a woman. Yes, because she's <laughs> decided. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> and not because she at all is a sort of rare bird. Yeah, it could just be that she's a rare bird. But uh, your wife not into poetry, Brandon? She's not. But then, so I think that maybe what we were getting at is not that women or men like poetry more. Mm-hmm. but that there is a poetic disposition mm-hmm. that maybe men have more than women. Because if I think about my parents, for example, my right. dad is about as stereotypical American male as you can imagine. Oh, and I Brand- you guys would agree, when, right? When Brandon says that, like, uh, yep. I mean, he is the stereotypical American. He's like, he's big. He's just larger meets, than life. Yeah. Texan played football in high school. Loves to tell you his stories about yep. either playing football or when he worked at the factory or out in the hayfields. Like just man's man stuff. Yeah, yeah. just all American man's man. Grew up dude. hunting yeah. all uh, and fishing and all these things mm-hmm. that you would imagine. And yet the romantic one in their relationship is him. Right. And my mom would admit that. He's the one that if either of them were ever to write a poem for the other person, it would be him. And he does many times in the way that he expresses his love towards her, like in giving her things and in talking to her and in the way he sees his past and even the way he thinks about his past is a very poetic way of thinking about your past, the feeling and the intensity of it. One thing that I've actually noticed, one of my favorite things about the summer now is going to Smithville Diamonds baseball and watching like guys like Jack's coach and all these men, the way that they deal with baseball, Mm -hmm. it's a poetic way of dealing with life through baseball and sports. Oh, yeah. And, well, the, and the women are there supporting baseball, them. What, what, what you have on the ball field, what you have is fathers and sons, and you have family life 
ordered around this metaphor for life that is catechistic. Mm-hmm. And that's what baseball is for a lot of these families that don't have any larger order ordering principles. Baseball is a metaphor for life and it's catechistic. And what they're doing is they're training their kids and their values and baseball is the tool that they use. Yep. And so they're connecting it all the time to life and to bigger things and to, but it's about a, a way of raising your kids. Yeah. And that's, that's what it is for lots and lots of families. And for lots and lots of families, it's really idolatrous. It is the church of baseball, as Susan Sarandon said, and wonder, that wonderful we... classic Bull Durham. Well, but yeah. I think men are but, often well, catechistic about these things. It's not just baseball. Men have to, I mean, if we're just going to be very traditional and generic and, uh, what's the word? Uh, binary? Binary. Yes. Men have to go out. They have to fight wars. They have to die. They have to conquer. And when you're going to be inspired to do those things, you have to connect them. If I'm going to go die for my country, I have to have an idea, a transcendent idea of what my country means. If I'm going to die for my wife, I have to have a transcendent idea of what my wife is. And so I think generally, very generally, I would generalize and say men are more romantic precisely because they need to be. Maybe men, maybe you could say men are more romantic about death. And maybe we should be, women are more romantic about life. I mean, women, women have to be romantic about children in a way perhaps that men don't. I don't know. I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. But even then, the people who usually romanticize those things are men. Right. Think about what Dickens does with it. With the children, yeah. Or one of my favorite examples of this, and maybe one of the first times I ever thought of it this way, I always bring him up, Tolstoy. Right. Um, Anna Karenina, when you have Levin at the childbirth scene, the women all go in and they're very practical about it. They know these secrets that Levin has no clue what's going on. I was thinking of Anna Karenina too, and I was thinking not of that scene, but of the scene where Levin's brother's dying. And Kitty is, I think, newly married to him. Yes. She shows up and she just she knows, knows what, to do. what to do. The parallel scenes for yeah. poetic reasons. For poetic yeah, reasons. Yeah, and Levin's there and he's, he's... At life and death, Levin's lost, yeah. but he's caught up in these transcendent realities. The feelings and, of it. Whereas Kitty... Kitty is just like, she's, she's been, straight to work. She knows what to yeah. do. She knows how to be helpful. And it's beautiful. And it's beautiful to Levin. He doesn't understand it. It's a mystery to him, but it's all... Well, this I mean, wonderful thing. And who's would, going to sit down in that moment and write a poem about it? Right. It well, would be Levin. Yeah, Levin would. And Kitty is, And Kitty would be like, what are you doing sitting down? I have no time for your poetry yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, there's some, things to do here. This person needs to be comforted. This person needs to be helped. And so I think, yeah. generally speaking, we Cold could... Cold water we, we is could worth more very, than all your words. Exactly. Yes. And I think we could broadly generalize and say, a lot of times, women, because of what they're made to do... They're, they're, they're made to deal with the actual practical mundane details of life. And when you do that, you don't want to be distracted by the transcendent poetic realities. You want to just be Fair like, this guy needs some yeah. cold water. My baby needs its diaper changed. It needs to stop crying. Yeah. You want to be able to just deal with the facts of life. And so are women poetic sometimes? Are men, whatever, can men be practical? Yes. But I would say, I think that that sort of thing was what I was sort of getting at in my head, at least. Maybe and I think, I, it's a tr- it. I think it's true. No, that does not mean that there aren't women. So that does not because, mean that there's not women. So we weren't saying that there were no women on this That's planet, right. We were not saying that. It's good to clarify that point. Right. There are women. <laughs> and that women in general can't appreciate poetry. Yeah. And it, well, poetry gets at feelings about things. We, we made that point last episode. Right. And that's one of the primary ways it goes about speaking about the world. Now, we didn't get here last time, but I do have issues with Robert Penn Warren with mm-hmm. that being his primary definition of poetry. Right. Because prose does the same thing. I mean, all the novels we read do that thing. And nobody made that point last time. Right. But it's true. So poetry has a particular way of going about doing it. It's, it's not just true. of It's true of all the arts. All the yeah. arts exist 
to elicit so, some feeling to train your emotions and how right. to think and feel about that's the value and how to respond to certain realities that are presented to them. Right. And that's the value of them. Yeah. To go that's... back to the baseball metaphor, like there's a good f- father who pitches for our team. Yeah. Who has been able to teach his son and other sons about discipline and stuff like that. Well, it's something as simple yeah. as catching a fly ball. What does it take to catch a fly ball? The mechanics of it are really simple. You have to be under the ball and you have to have your glove up with your fingers to the sky. And in order to see that properly, your head needs to be under the ball. Those are the mechanics of it. But what's the reality of it? The reality of it is you have to have your face under the ball that is falling fast. If you miss the ball, it should hit you between the eyes. That's what you tell them. And so what's catching a ball really about? What's really about overcoming the fear of looking at a ball coming straight between your eyes? It's really about overcoming fear. That's right. And it's really about having courage and understanding that uh, if you're going to accomplish things in life, you're going to take risks Mm -hmm. and you're going to have to put yourself in harm's way if you're going to do something great. And there are all kinds of ways in the most mundane acts of a dumb sport like baseball that you can teach these great transcendent truths to your kids. And you can point back like I was this morning to uh, my son, Abraham, who is six years old and he is excellent at baseball and he just made the six-year-old all-star team. He is terrified of swimming mm-hmm. and he's doing swim lessons. He's very athletic. He's very capable, but he lacks the confidence and the courage to really stretch out and trust himself and to trust his teachers in the water. And so I was comparing it to catching a fly ball. Yeah. And I was explaining to him how he can trust his teachers, he can trust the people that God puts in authority over him, and he can trust himself if he just has courage. Nobody's going to let him fall. <clears throat> he may, He's going to have to struggle. He's going to have to take some risks, but he's going to have to overcome that fear. And he can do that, too, because he did it with catching a baseball. Mm-hmm. To extend that further, the attitude of the person teaching It's like this father that I was talking about. Yeah. He's teaching his son a way to feel about these things through his attitude. Yep. Because then right after that, there was this other father who is a very bitter, angry sort of man. And the way I saw him interacting, and he teaches one of the all-star teams, apparently. Yeah. Our coaches are as one of the assistant coaches. But the way that he was teaching these boys and uh, approaching them and talking to them, it's giving them his bitterness, right? It's giving them his anger. Yep. And... That matters. Right. And so that I mean that that's a, but that's a metaphorical way of thinking about life. And that's because metaphors extend feeling through the way that we think about things. Well, I keep thinking about the, the famous patent speech from the movie, but also the real general patent gave a slightly more vulgar version of what he gives in the movie. You know, we're going to go through the enemy like crap through a goose, you know, no, yeah. no jerk ever made his say won a war by dying, dying for, for his, his country, country. won a war by making the other, other stupid sob die for, die his. for his yeah yeah that's all poetry i mean that's all metaphor it's all colorful language it's all meter it's all rhythm and that's what you use to inspire people to go and die then i think it is very so people get confused then and i think robert Penn warren gets a little bit confused in understanding poetry the essay that starts this book right because he wants to say that that's like poetry right. and maybe that might be a poetic so it's true to say that there's a poetic way of looking right. at life. And I think that's what people mean usually by that is when you try to imbue the way you're talking about things with feeling and attitude. I think that's what we're talking about with baseball and stuff yeah. like that, right? No, yeah. And I think that, I mean, these people would be horrified if I went out to the mound and just started teaching them about how 
They have a poetic way of looking at life. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> so when we're talking then about poetry, we're thinking it, we're thinking about a craft, a particular art form, a craft that tries to capture this in a very particular way. What's that sound? Oh my goodness. What? It's, it's the, the contextual Texan firing off his gun. How many, how, how far in this episode are we? <laughs> I don't know, but I promised people we'd give them a more linear discussion of poetry, Brandon, and there's only one among us that has any kind of linearity to his, uh, to the understand, to understanding poetry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the, so when I'm teaching high schoolers poetry, yes. One of the ways I like to start is by thinking of poetry in, as three different categories. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of maybe even just two categories, really. Mm-hmm. I say rhythm, sense, and sound. Right. And the sound sense is meaning. And so you really start with rhythm and sound, but those are kind of the two, two of the same things. Right. Um, often I'll point to a chair in the classroom and I'll say, okay, tell me about this chair. Did it have to be made? Did it have to be crafted? And tell me the parts and pieces of it. And they'll start talking about it. You know, it's got the legs and the seat and all this. And you know, somebody had to make this thing, right? And why they make it this way? Because it's functional. It has a form. You're like, well, poetry is the same way. It's It has to have a form and it's functional. It does something. And what's the form of poetry is there are all sorts of forms. You can have sonnets. You can have sestinas. You can have villanelles. You can have just free verse. You can have ballads, which leads us to pop music and stuff like that, which then gets you to modern music with its what is the typical structure, the verse, bridge, verse, verse, chorus, chorus, bridge, bridge, Mm -hmm. that sort of structure. Three-legged stools, four-legged stools, chairs with backs, chairs with arms, five-star chairs that roll. Exactly. But the point being that- But you better be able to sit in it at the end. Yeah, you better be able to sit in it, and a poem better be able to be a poem in the end. And that's what a lot of people get confused by, is they want a poem to be something more than a poem. But in the end, a poem is a poem, and a poem does a very particular poetic thing. Which is what- it does. It's it's a poem. It, it is the thing. It is. Brandon, the, this sounds like circular logic. And it sounds. Sir? And that's what students accuse it of too. But I was reading this article the other day by this poet, and he said it was a radical realization of his when he began to understand that a poem, what makes a poem a poem, is by actually just the poem itself matters. That it is a poem. That's what. That's what it is. Are you saying that if I say something's a, a poem? No, I'm not. Poem? It does have to do certain things. Well, then can't you tell me what a poem? Yeah, is? I can. I can tell you that. Okay. Just like I can tell you that a chair is made of certain materials, right? Now, you can have people who try to be avant-garde with a chair and change the form of what it means to be a chair. Yeah, but Brandon, I'm just going to be a devil's advocate here. Yeah. If I can't sit in a chair, it's not a chair. Exactly. A chair has a very specific purpose. Now, what is the purpose of a poem? There we go. You want me to tell you? Well, it sounds like you're just saying the purpose of a poem is to be a poem. No, no, no. That's the purpose of a chair is to be a chair, right? The purpose of a a chair is to be a thing that I can sit in. But you could also then reword that to say the purpose of a chair is to be then a chair, a thing you can sit in. So the purpose of a poem is to be a poem. Okay, a chair is a thing that I sit in. What's a poem? Yeah. What is the definition, right? Yeah, so it's just a definition. And so, in other words, there is a thing that is a poem, right? What is that thing, though? That's what we're getting at, Nathan. You're you, trying to push you, me too you, fast. You just haven't told me yet. Okay. I haven't told you yet. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> you don't have to. Back off, buddy. <laughs> All he was saying is you you can't have a chair that defies what it is to be a chair. Exactly. And call it a chair. An ice cream cone is not a chair. That's right. And so unless you turn it, unless you make it real big. <laughs> Never mind. Sit in it. Um, Let's do this. We'll take out a patent. Sounds like fun to me. You can eat it as you sit in it. Yeah. Cover yourself in chocolate syrup. Sounds great. Um, (laughs) The point being is that we often try to make a poem to be this airy expression of feelings. Mm -hmm. 
that then certain magical geniuses have access to. Right. But what I really want to stress to students at this point is that a poem is a crafted thing. It's a made thing, and it has rules that it follows. A lot of these rules are just because of the tradition of poetry, just like film has rules because of the tradition of film. Theater has rules because of the tradition of theater. And so, and then you'll have certain playwrights that'll break those rules, like until Shakespeare, a lot of plays only took place in a day. And then suddenly, like with A Winter's Tale, or The Winter's Tale, you get a poem that takes place with 16 years. Mm -hmm. But it's because of those rules that you can break them in the first place, right? right? It's because those rules exist. So what are the rules of poetry? Well, the rules of poetry is that it expresses meaning, and we'll get to what the meaning is, but it expresses meaning through the sound of language. In particular, the way that words play off of one another. So like with alliteration or with assonance or with consonance, with rhythm, rhythm is a part of this as well, and with rhyme. And that's poetry is really concerned with how language sounds and how we can craft those sounds to build something that sounds beautiful and musical without music and with language. I'm just going to be a jerk and keep asking obvious questions yeah. that, that make it hard for you. Doesn't the Gettysburg Address do everything that you just said? Doesn't lots of oratory, don't lots of other things that we wouldn't call poems use sound to express meaning? Or Yes, but a poem in itself highlights those aspects. And it does that by... It's about the sounds. It's about the sounds. And so it does that by putting things into stanzas, by breaking them up into lines. And if you think about it, like when a, when a scientist takes a sample and puts it under the microscope, he's isolating that thing. <laughs> this is a weird metaphor or an no, analogy. No, it's a good metaphor. And so because when that's you, what I think all art does well, yeah. is it takes one aspect of something and isolates it. Yeah. So it cuts off the other senses. So think about it. cuts yeah. off other aspects. And you can do that within discipline. So within the discipline of words, poetry isolates things further. than Like a painting takes away words, takes away sound, focuses on an image. That's right. Yeah. Right? Alfred Hitchcock said a movie is life with the boring parts cut out. And I really think it's like you take everything out that doesn't matter and suddenly you see something. Yeah. And so w words, you know, just as a category of art form, art with words are broad. Poetry is a very specific and narrow uh, way of limiting how you use those words yeah. and what you focus on and what you draw attention to. That's right. And it does that through the sound of language. And it just so happens that languages are very different from one another. And then they, they lend themselves towards different forms of oral, aural, A-U-R-A-L. Mm -hmm. I'm pointing to my ears. People on the podcast can yes, see this. But the way that words sound, and also the way that they look on paper as well, because a sonnet, it's, it's interesting if you ever try to write poetry or if you look at different types of poems, like a poet who uses like long words, the sonnet lines will become much shorter. And it'll look very strange if all of a sudden they use like words that are individual because the next line will be really long. Mm -hmm. But it'll mm -hmm. still use the same amount of syllables. Yeah. But it's, so it's the way that it looks on but a paper. a lot of poets, are, yeah, are very concerned about that. They are very concerned about that. I like that. your buddy uh, George Herbert. What's he the, what is it called? The altar or whatever? Yeah. Where yeah. yeah. Or, or so, Wings. Or what, is Wings the name of the one? Easter Wings. Easter Wings. Yeah. Yeah. yeah where it's the words actually form actually the shape of something. He actually shapes them in the, yeah. 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 But poems are very, and po poetry, and poets, I guess, mm -hmm. is what you would say. Poets, let's say poets. Okay. That's the better word. Poets are very concerned with how words sound in relation to one another, and with the rhythm that is inherent to language. And there are very s technical ways, you could say scientific ways, of going about looking at a poem. And, yeah. I Sorry, it just occurs to me to point out that uh, post-printing press poetry has emphasized the the visual aspect of it in a way that wasn't 
That's right. Emphasized before. That's right. And so, and this is all a historical phenomenon. So much of poetry was rehearsed, That's recited, right. so, passed down orally. And a lot of that has to do with Yeah, a lot of that has to do with the way that the English language developed. And so, like I was saying, languages themselves have certain qualities that are inherent to them. So, like French language is very rhythmic and very rhyme heavy. Early Anglo-Saxon English was very guttural. It was concerned with the sound of words. And so if you read early Anglo-Saxon poetry, like Beowulf, in the original Anglo-Saxon, was concerned with alliteration. Right. That's how it That's how it formed poetry. So you would have two parts of the line. There would be a break in the middle of the line called the caesura, and then the poem would form around an echo of a consonant in the first line with a consonant in the second line, and that would be the full line. Right. And so that's how it worked. It was called alliterative poetry. And there are complications to it, and you can go and read about it. But that is really how Anglo-Saxon best formed poetry, because it it was a very hard, clunky language. And so to make it sound rhythmic and beautiful through meter, right. it wasn't it wasn't going to work with that sort of poem, with that sort of language. However, after 1066, when William the Conqueror came, he brought Norman influences, and Norman is French. And so all the Romance languages came in and poured into England, and then that changed and mixed with the guttural, alliterative sounds of Anglo-Saxon. And suddenly you have this language that can do both. Mm-hmm. It can yeah, be the, both. English the beauty is a of English, boss language. Yeah. yeah, the beauty of it is that somehow, instead of losing both, it gained both. Yeah. It's like a Camaro. You can see it looks it, you great, can, but it has something under the hood. Yeah, you can. That's right. Yeah. You can see it chain a Camaro. That's right. Poetry is like a Camaro. Yeah, the language, <laughs> the English language metaphor. is like a Camaro. And this isn't to say that in Welsh and Anglo-Saxon poetry, there wasn't some form of rhyming and interplay with words and sounds. I mean, people have always been interested in that. Right. That's part of the delight of poetry. Is but only beyond, English people have done it well. Yeah, beyond the sense of <laughs> yes. Just like only men understand poetry, only English white people. <laughs> right. Just really white English males do poetry really well. The province of poetry. <laughs> it's white English males. <laughs> that is the bookening stance. <laughs> that is our official stance. Um, no, but if people want to understand how we got to the Shakespeare. Oh, we do. That's where we're, that's where we're building towards. Okay. This is how we get there. This is the history of your language. And students always look at me baffled when I start here. I start with saying, well, poetry's crafted. Well, how does something get crafted in the first place? It's because people use it, right? People have wanted to use it in a specific way. And one of the ways that people have always used language was one, or poetry was to tell stories, Mm -hmm. but they wanted you to feel about it a certain way, right? So if you read Beowulf, it's not just to tell you, well, here's, you can go and read a history about Beowulf, Beowulf, what he wanted you to do. to inspire you to be heroic. That's right. It conveys the emotion of heroism and manfulness. Like, it's like... That's right. Once, if you read Seamus Haney's version, it wants you to read it out loud. It wants you to be in the mead hall. It's like, it wants to inspire the little boy to go take out his sword and and imagine himself fighting Grindel. That's right. And so a lot of the things you would have, like the alliteration would help sort of, it's, it's, it has an enchanting quality to it. Right. It's, it's like music. It sort of draws you in and makes you forget that you're even listening to a story to an extent. Right. Like if you ever just found yourself lost in a song mm-hmm. playing, it has that sort of mesmerizing quality to it. People make that, make that point about Homer as well. A lot mm-hmm. of his repetitions and his use of imagery was, it was a mnemonic device for one, the wine dark sea. So you could always remember when the wine dark sea came in, it was going to be the wine dark sea. Right. And with early Anglo-Saxon poetry, like Jake was saying, that wasn't written down. And so these guttural sounds that get repeated 
help you remember, okay, I have weight here, so I'm going to need to have in this next line, whatever you might echo with that. Mm-hmm. It was definitely mnemonic. It was also mesmerizing and enchanting, but it also with, through this music, it, it, there's a strange thing that poetry does through the rhythm and the sound that unlike music or unlike film or even painting that can just be an image based, right? Language is inherently trying to get a meaning to us because that's what words do. So the literary arts can't help but get involved with meaning somehow. Right. Right. You just can't help it. And that's why, that's where the challenge of, we've ran into this with a booking before, plenty of times with novels, right? You, you will eventually, people want to say, well, you can just divorce yourself from the meaning and just love it for the art it is. And that's, uh, you can't because the author's intentions will eventually come through. And so that's something we always deal with. And so like with Anglo-Saxon literature, like Jake was saying, it wanted to make you feel what it would be like to be with Beowulf fighting Grendel, the bone crunching and the diving under these waters to go and fight his mother. And then at the end being that last soldier who decides to stand with Beowulf when none of the other soldiers will. And the weeping and the sadness that's there with this moment coming to an end. And you're supposed to feel it. It's, it's, it's feeling. And the way it, with the way Beowulf gets, conveys it is through the alliteration, through the meter, through the rhythms, but also through the story it's telling, through the images, through the way, like the bone crunching. They were literally, I think that actually is a word they, at least Seamus Heaney uses. Yeah. Right. And so when you get then the French influences, you have more rhythmic things that come into poetry and a lot of the Italian than with the Italian Renaissance with people can't see my hand motions. Right. But I am very expressive with my hands. You are here. very. I can confirm. Um, and so around the same time, you know, like Petrarch was writing in Italy a little bit before the Renaissance, but it was, the Renaissance was starting. Brandon moves his hand in a circular motion. Yeah. What if I just narrate everything you're you doing with your hands? Without it's kind of like people are watching figure skating. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, with Petrarch, you would have these forms that we now think of with poetry, like the sonnet. Petrarch's from, a dude. Petrarch was a dude. I'm just, uh, maybe somebody is listening that hasn't heard of Petrarch. You don't know. Yeah, he was an Italian poet and he wrote a 14 line poem called a sonnet. Mm-hmm. And this came into English about the 14-1500s, and then Shakespeare would take it up, and he would be the most famous writer of sonnets in the English language. Right. The point being that all these European forms came into English language largely through the courtly movements that would happen after William the Conqueror and through people like Eleanor of Aquitaine. And you can go and you can read your histories about this if you want to, people. Or maybe we'll do a bookening poetry thing or something. But the point being... That English, the English poetry in particular began to not only have this concern for the sound of words like alliteration and consonants and assonance from its Anglo-Saxon roots, but also the way that syllables related to one another. And this would be a very European thing. So you get things like iambic, trochaic, anapestic, dactylic, meter that comes into English. The meaning of the poem is important, but also the actual way that the syllables work in relation to one another become very important as well. Meter is just the way that syllables relate to one another. And what it does is, like Jake said, after after the printing press, and you actually would write these poems down, it became very, uh, poetry became concerned with line length in relation to one another. And this was, I mean, you had earlier instances of this too, like with ballads and stuff. So especially with Irish ballads and things like this, things that would become song and that we would sing. Line length was a particularly important because you would want to put it to music. And usually the lines would be related through meter and through rhyme. Everybody, I think, knows what rhyme is. Do we have to explain rhyme? Nope. Okay. <clears throat> I mean, there are various types of rhyme. But the meter 
And it has a whole complicated history, but the meter is particularly related to particular forms of poetry. So like you would have a ballad, which would be one sort of meter. You'd have a sonnet, which would be another sort of meter. But the meter itself is the relation of syllables to one another. We think of it, when I say we, people who like poetry, people who try to analyze poetry, think of it in terms of is the syllable that you're looking at at the moment, is it stressed or unstressed within the line? And then you pair stressed and unstressed syllables together, and you get what's called a foot. And there are all sorts of different types of feet that we have inherited from the Romans, but there are six most useful feet. Six most useful feet. Six most useful feet. You have the ium, mm-hmm. which is unstressed, stressed. You have the troche, which is stressed, unstressed. Can you give us examples? Is that asking too much? Um, I mean, could you give us an example? <laughs> well, ium would be like, to be. To be or not, not to, to be. be. Trochaic would be, um, tiger, tell me tiger not, burning here, bright. Here you go. Tell me not in mournful numbers. This is Longfellow's Psalm of Life. Tell me not in mournful numbers. That's trochaic. Stressed, unstressed. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, one, a good mnemonic device for remembering this that I give students is the next pairing is going to, so those are the two syllable pairings. Mm-hmm. Then you have your three syllable pairings, which is going to be more like a waltz, the dactylic, and these, is going to be stressed, unstressed, unstressed. And this is a good, this is the forest primeval, the murmuring pines and the hemlocks. That's from Evangeline Henry by Longfellow. And then you have anapestic, which sounds like a pasta. It does. But it's uh, unstressed, unstressed, stressed. That would be, oh, what's a famous uh, anapestic song, um, poem? What's, it's pretty rare. Destruction of Sennacherib. Uh, in the blink of an eye, by the skin of your teeth. In the blink of an eye. Yeah, you can hear that there, in the blink of an eye. In the skin the of your teeth. By the skin down. of your teeth. And so these are just... Hit the nail on the head. Yeah. At the drop of a hat. And Costs so, an arm and a leg. There you go. In the heat of the moment. In the, in the heat still of the, of the night. In the still of the night. And so as poetry became concerned with feet and with meter... Certain poems would have one type of foot over the other. And so a sonnet is, you can actually define a sonnet as a 14-line poem. And there are three different, really three different types of sonnets. There's a Shakespearean, there's a Petrarchan, and there's a Spenserian sonnet. And they have, that all, only means the rhyme scheme is different for each one. The famous one is the Shakespearean, it's A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G, right? And then the Spenserian is different, and the Petrarchan is a little bit different itself. Can the groupings of lines have certain names? So like a grouping of six lines would be a sestet. So a grouping of eight lines would be an octave. A grouping of two lines would be a couplet. And then you would also count the actual number of feet within a line as well. And that would give the line a particular name as well. So a sonnet is, because now we have the craft of poetry because of this influences from Europe and stuff that came in with the Anglo-Saxon concerns, you can actually define a sonnet as a 14-line poem with a particular rhyme scheme, each line has iambic pentameter. And what that means is that there are five iams in each line. And so a poem is concerned with line length, it's concerned with the meter in the line, and it's concerned with the way that the ending of that line relates to the other lines within the poem, whether it rhymed or unrhymed. Does that make sense? That makes sense to me. And this is how we get to the craft of what we now call English poetry. And it is a craft. It's like when someone would say, well, your boards need to be a certain length. Well, to write a sonnet, and that's one thing that this guy that I've been reading, William Logan, points out, is that if you're going to commit to a form, 
only break that form if you have a reason, not because you're lazy. Right. And that's what a lot of people don't understand about poetry is that since it is a craft and there are certain rules to follow, you have to learn the craft. You have to learn the rules. And it can be difficult. But if you begin to familiarize yourself with the rules, it becomes less difficult Mm -hmm. over time. Knowing that an English sonnet works that particular way, especially Shakespearean sonnet, but all sonnets work in one particular way that I think is helpful to know. They have those lines. The rhymes are typically need to be good, true rhymes as opposed to a slant rhyme, unless the slant rhyme is meant to show you something in the poem or to point you towards some change. And then the first eight lines of the poem typically deal with one attitude towards life. And the last six lines, after what's called the verso or the turn, kind of have a shift in attitudes towards that thing. It's like a setup and a punchline almost. Yeah, almost like a setup and a punchline. And you can go read any Shakespeare sonnet, and what you're just going to see is you have two sets of four lines, which are quartets, and then you're going to have the last quartet with a couplet, which is technically a sestet because they're together, which kind of gives you a different attitude towards the uh, towards it. So it'll be a lot of Shakespeare sonnets deal with time and our inability to confront time. And then the last quartet will shift you towards the couplet, which is going to be, however, through verse, I'm going to immortalize you, right? Right. And so that's the way a Shakespearean sonnet will work. A lot of poetry has these, uh, almost every poetic form you deal with has these demands with its structure. So people try to just go out and they'll write a sonnet thinking, I'm going to write 14 lines and that's going to be a sonnet. But no, there's a whole history behind that sonnet that if you actually want to get into poetry and write a poem that is a sonnet, you have to understand that it comes with rules. There's iambic pentameter. There are these rhymes that have to work a certain way. There's the verse, so there's the turn. There are these things that this sonnet has to do now to actually functionally be a sonnet, just like there are things that a chair has to do now to functionally be a chair. And then if you want to elevate that chair into being an art art chair, <laughs> like an actual well-crafted, beautiful object, there are even more things that it has to do. And I think that this leaves people usually just thinking, well, I mean, that's a lot of work. Yeah, it is a lot of work. <laughs> what good thing is it? <laughs> yeah. Idiot. <laughs> yeah. Is there a lot of forms you have to learn? You have to easy. learn what a sestina is. You have to learn what a villanelle is. One of the things that's um, was it's really fun about poetry is like for the first time I put up for some students um Stopping in the Woods on a Snowy Evening or mm-hmm. Stopping by the Woods on a Snowy Evening by Robert. Robert Frost. And what's really fun about that poem is and here's a good example of why you need to understand the history behind poetry to sometimes get at what a poet's really doing. That poem, if you look at it closely, it actually, it adds one extra line because it's quartets, but it's actually following what's called an interwoven rhyme scheme, which is also known as Terza Rima, which the other famous poet that used Terza Rima was Dante, the Inferno. And he opens the Inferno, and at the beginning, he was outside of a woods. And so having these echoes that you then realize are actually in stopping in Robert Frost's poem help you understand what he's actually getting at with that poem better. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Because he's adopting this form, he's building this form into his poem. And these echoes, these uh, allusions help you to get at what the poet is actually trying to do. And a good poet who's aware of his history, who's aware of the importance of form, who's aware of the importance of meter and rhyme and all these things in the whole history and that there have been other poets who have done these things and who's a careful poet who wants to be good at what he does, is going to know these things and is going to put them into his poem. And yeah, maybe it might look elitist, but it's no more elitist than a baseball player who really wants to be really good at what he does. And he's in that a good baseball player is going to be aware of what the other baseball players have done, who his history is behind him, what his position is in baseball history, all these things. Absolutely. It's no different. So, I mean... The remarkable thing about 
let's, let's stick with baseball as a metaphor, is that at the end of the day, the foundational building blocks uh, for what makes the best of the best Hall of Famers and what you teach five and six-year-olds are all the same. The building blocks, the fundamentals are all the same. It's yeah. just building and building and building and building That's right. on those fundamentals. And it's the same with poetry. So like if I teach young children poetry, I teach them what is an am, what is a troche. Now we'll do little fun things like I'll have them put their arms down. Then I'll have them jump up at a stress and then they'll put their arms down at an, an unstressed. So they actually start to feel what a poem is and how it works. But what you want to drive into little children like that is that poems work a very, very particular way. So A.A. A. Milne is a great poet to go to because he does this. Right. What you begin to show them is that funny poems are funny sounding because they use da 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 They use anapests and dactyls more than iams and troches because iams and troches sound more like natural speech. Mm-hmm. We don't use three-syllable stresses as much in just normal language, in normal talking. We use more iams and troches. It's just the natural way. That's why when Shakespeare did blank verse, it's iambic. Right. It's not anapestic. And if someone then wants to stress the music of something, they're either going to play around with maybe some troches or they're going to maybe do some dactyls and anapests. But you got to be careful because if you use too many dactyls or anapests, you end up sounding like Longfellow, who's kind of a clown at times. <laughs> by the shores of Gitchy Gumi, by the da 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 da. And that's just trochaic. So, um, <laughs> what other podcast would have somebody? Be careful. Yeah. You don't want to sound like that clown Longfellow. <laughs> well, he does. I mean, and so. This is where our five-star and one-star reviews come from. <laughs> yep, yeah. No, that's not to say there's not a place for Longfellow, but what you do need to understand is that what would be a good example? People like, without sounding too pretentious. Well, maybe you just can't get away without sounding too pretentious. Longfellow is very simple and straightforward in the way that he goes about his poetry. Right. It's not complicated. And it does sound very sing-songy and goofy. But someone who really wants to write a good poem is going to try and work with those sounds in such a way as to make it sound interesting and beautiful, right? And the only way you really get to know that sort of poetry is by reading it. Mm -hmm. And by then understanding, taking apart, looking at a Shakespeare sonnet, realizing he really doesn't really ever break out of iams. How in the world does he get a poem to sound this wonderful and never break out of iams? And then you get to John Donne and you're like, he breaks out of iams all the time. What's going on here? And then you try to figure these sorts of things out. What's he doing? And why is he doing it this way? Because John Donne was, was not an idiot. Right. Why is I thought he you were about to say that John Donne wasn't an idiot. Because John Donne was an idiot. <laughs> no, like why does he have 12 syllables here as opposed to 10? And then you realize, well, it's because he was trying to go more for the natural speech. He was stretching things here and there. So his sonnets don't sound as sing-songy even as a Shakespeare sonnet maybe. Right. I have a question. Yeah. Well, how do you know that John Donne wasn't an idiot? That is a good question. That is a good question. Do you want to address that? Because <laughs> he's a genius and everybody says he's a genius. I don't know. How do you know that it was all intentional? I, you don't know that it's all intentional and that would be fun. Maybe if we do some special side podcasts. There's, there's no doubt that he was a genius. There are some how lines. You, how do you know the degree of intentionality about I think, But one thing, once you begin to, this is actually fun to talk about because mm-hmm. when you begin to look at the craft of poetry, that means you can actually take issue with things. There are John Donne lines that I take issue with. And I yeah. think I think John Donne was being lazy there. Right. There are some rhymes that John Donne has. I'm thinking, oh, there's one place where I think he rhymes me and me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, John Donne, come on, get over. Dude, you could have done better than John that. John Donne failed. Yeah. He doesn't mean he's not John Donne still, but it does mean that he failed. And I'm sure that 
in all of Shakespeare's 150 sonnets, there are places where he failed. Maybe the answer to Jake's question is that you look How bro- you dare look- you? How yeah. dare you? I think you look broadly for intentionality and for craftsmanship. And if you see it in a lot of places, then, then you, you can- start to assume it in places where it's not obvious to you. And maybe you even assume and that, it wrong. And that is why you do it with Yeah, exactly. With Don, right? That is a like, good answer there. You but- see, yeah. You see the intentionality in all of the obvious ways that express beauty and genius. And then when you hit up against the thing that you don't understand, you assume that you're the idiot. Yeah. Well, it's why right. it's why our Shakespeare episodes always fall to pieces because I'm always I always want to ask like why did Shakespeare do this and I always feel like an idiot and we get into these weird discussions. But it's just like if you assume this guy's a genius, which he is, why did he do this weird stuff that he does? And it's it's just always a fascinating and you always assume he's a genius, but you also also assume he's a man. He's a human, yes. And I think that's been one of the bookings. Absolutely, stand Something that, that we, we take. Yeah. yeah. And that John Dunn can fail. John Dunn, John Dunn, Dunn can fail. That'd be fun. I, th- I think I can remember the holy sonnet that I really take issue with that I just think is bad. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, I I totally just jumped all over Nathan creating some space to ask his own yes, question. Yes, I have a question for you, Brandon. Yeah, I like baseball. Yeah, but if you've been like, let's let's imagine we we're doing a podcast about baseball, and you're like, baseball means this, baseball, and then Jake's like the fundamentals, and then you're like baseball, baseball, and then. I'm like, I'm going to watch some baseball. And I turn on the TV and it's a guy smearing himself with, with birthday cake and calling it baseball. <laughs> that would make feel weird to me. Yeah, what's your point? Well, my point, that's, I guess, my poetic metaphor for what happens when I try and read. And what I think maybe some of our listeners are thinking is, wow, Brandon's talking about form and he's talking about meter. He's talking about yes, all these yes, things. Yes. And yet I open up a copy of The New Yorker. Yes. I see these things that are called poems that don't well, have that. That's a, that's a, there's two answers to that. One, that's a historical artifact of where we are today and that poetry, much like art. So I went to a modern art museum with my dear wife when we were Mm -hmm. first dating and we ended up leaving the modern art museum with her crying at the state of what, where art was because that's like not the art that she wanted. Right. It was just like a square in a corner that was black in this white room or there was this mirror saying, you look in it. Oh, you're the art. You're like, oh, whoa. I, I went <laughs> into I a... combed um, my hair. I, I, I went to uh, a modern art museum in Washington, D.C. not too long ago, and you walked into one room, and there were four TVs, and they were playing an image of a computer-generated guy, like, ripping some of his flesh out and then eating it or something like that. Yeah. And then you, you watched that for a little while. I think the national anthem was playing behind it. And then you, yeah. there was another one that was a glass case that just has simply had a pile of dirty laundry yeah. soiled laundry in it that you could look at and so two i mean so there are two things there one it's a historical fact that with postmodernism we don't think that there really is truth anymore mm-hmm. or at least people in the academy and so they're always trying to fight against that and so they're doing the avant-garde make it new make it new this comes from Ezra Pound with modernism and everything they just have to try and fight against the old conservative way of looking at poetry that you know, maybe the sonnet form and the sestina form, all these things aren't the ways to express ourselves anymore. Right. And so now we have to fight against that. And so that's what becomes the cool hip thing in New York City. And so the New Yorker takes it up and they want to be cool and hip. And so they give you those sorts of poems, Right. which then you get a nonsensical poem, which I still to this day have no idea how this poem was about an anthill. But there was a poem in the New Yorker that was supposed to be about an anthill. And I don't have any clue how it was about an ant. <laughs> And I like to think that I understand something about poetry. I like to think that too. So it was just nonsense. And it was because this person was just kind of doing surreal Dadaism sort of crazy stuff. That's the first answer 
to that. The second answer is some of the avant-garde poets, they are doing some interesting things with poems, but they're doing it with such a sort of erudite knowledge of all the history of poetry, like with what T.S. Eliot was doing with The Wasteland for something, for example. The Wasteland is actually a pretty interesting poem, but you come to The Wasteland after having read lots and lots of poems. Right. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. There is a certain, like, if, if, for example, if you're a music student, you don't suddenly start playing concertos. You start by learning your five-finger exercises. And this is why, as an educator, I think it's very important for children to start learning the basics of poetry when they're in elementary school. Right. Because then when they get to something like The Wasteland and as a freshman in college, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I kind of see what he is doing here. As opposed to being like, well, this is just trash and garbage. It's the difference between... To go back to your birthday cake and baseball metaphor. <laughs> My wonderful metaphor. It, baseball, sound, the way you talk about baseball, it sounds great. I turn on the TV. How do I know that this guy smearing cake on himself is not baseball, right? Well, just got an image of Jack's pitching coach smearing himself <laughs> cake on Monday. <laughs> well, uh, on the most fundamental level, baseball is a game where you throw the ball, you catch the ball, you hit the ball. Right. Right. There's a very elemental four and five and six-year-old way to throw and catch a ball. But if you were to turn on a Major League Baseball game and watch certain pitchers pitch, if you watch their mechanics, if you watch their wind-up and delivery, and then if you tried to watch what the ball did and you saw it break six feet, you know, that's a, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But you see the ball dance, you see right. the ball move, you see them go through elaborate wind-ups that are part of how they disguise their pitches and use deception like so much of that's going to look unorthodox and weird and wild right that you it's not going to look like a simple person just actually throwing a baseball what that looks like to you yeah if all you know is five and six year olds throwing a baseball but the more schooled you are in it and the more disciplined you are in it the more you understand all the little things that people are doing that look weird mm-hmm. and some people do that and it's to a purpose and some people do it and it's showmanship and some people do it and they do it on TV and there's a reason they're not doing it in the actual baseball game. Right. Yeah. And there's some people who do it because they think that's what they should be doing to look like someone who's... Right. Well, yeah, that's what you're going to see when the kids are on eight-year-old all-star teams. Yeah. But how do they I know? They start doing dumb things because they saw it on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you know? Well, I've got baseball over here and then I've got somebody smearing himself with birthday cake over here. Yeah. How do I know where on that spectrum we're suddenly you not find playing baseball? someone whose discernment and wisdom you trust who really loves that thing. And that's what I've discovered in my life. I've had some really good teachers who I've trusted. And then I've also found as I grow in my understanding of poetry and just what it is, right. them to be wrong in certain areas. And as I develop my own tastes and principles about what poetry is, it changes. But I think that's really the only way you can do it is A, trusting certain people. Right. B, getting the experience. Right. And that's the same thing with baseball. It's the same thing with anything. So, I mean, and that's why it's really useful to me to teach poetry as a craft, as an art, as, right. a, as opposed to this erudite, strange, airy thing. Because that's what, that's what the avant-garde want us to, is that it's mainly useful only to keep the intellectuals, the intellectuals, and to prove their intellectualism. Right. Or as some sort of weird political posturing. Like those are the only two things that poetry Those and, that and, know, know, man. Yeah, and those are the only things that it can do, but that's just not that's not the case. And so that's why you always have movements back to poetic forms. And so even though you'll have these avant-garde movements that'll try and do things, and certain people will do interesting things, and just like uh, with movies, you'll get avant-garde weird stuff. But sure. some of them will do interesting things, like the Coen brothers or P.T. Anderson. 
who are still weird. Right. But same thing with poetry. You'll get post. You'll get get people who are just posturing, who are bad poets, but they're so smart and they know so many big words. They can convince people that they what they are saying must be something interesting. Right. And I think that's where we are with poetry today, uh, with difficult poetry like that. I've rarely found that a poem that is difficult semantically is worth trying to understand. Hmm. I think that's true. Yeah, I have never, I, I can't think of one poem that I've actually found it difficult semantically. Now, that's important because there are some poems that are difficult metaphorically, which we haven't even talked about that yet. Right. There are some poems that are difficult metaphorically to understand, but that's different. I think we read that uh, Autumn Comes to Martinsbury, Ohio. Right. That's kind of a difficult metaphorically speaking to understand poem, even though it's not really using big words. You have to understand why does he use the therefore and all that suicidally beautiful stuff. What does it mean? And that's, uh, I guess that's the last layer of poetry we haven't really talked about is that, um, poetry through rhythm and sound, that's like, that's the primary concern of poetry. And I think that's kind of where Robert Penn Warren goes off the rails is in his opening essay, even though this whole book is about the sound of poetry. Right. In that opening essay, he makes it all about like the experience that poetry gives you. And it's like, but that's kind of just what art does for you. So how does poetry as an art do this for you? Right. So when I teach students, I teach them sound and then also meaning. And the way that poem, poems go about meaning is sometimes through the sound, through the echoes, through the rhymes and stuff that are internal to the lines. That has a strange way of adding emphasis to things. The actual sound of words does that you'll only, you only see when you actually just start reading poetry. But it also does it through rhetorical devices through and through metaphor and image. Those are the famous ways that poetry goes about meaning. So rhetorical devices would just be any use of language that is obviously structuring that language in a certain way intentionally to mean something, right? right? As opposed to just trying to make it be flat and boring. It's trying to use words to do something, typically through style to get at emotion. And then you can go and you can look at all the tropes and figures of speech that are a part of rhetoric, it's a whole rich history behind that. And the metaphor, uh, do we need to des- describe what metaphor is? But that's primarily the way that poetry goes about meaning, is through rhetorical devices and through metaphor or symbol or image. And now, and then, I mean, it's always in your personal taste is always going to be involved. Personally, I really like imagery-heavy poetry. That's one of my favorites. And so I'm drawn to that sort of poem. I love Elizabeth Bishop. I love things like that, so... Does that mean she's the greatest poet to ever live? Probably not, but I'm still drawn to her. And you'll find that your tastes your tastes are strange. There are all sorts of wonderful poets out there to explore. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, why not? <laughs> to explore and yeah. find your own personal favorites. I love Yeats. I love Bishop. Bishop. I like T- I like T.S. Eliot. I like children's poetry quite a bit. I like Wallace Stevens for some yeah. ridiculous reason. I like Wallace Stevens uh, quite a bit too. I've grown to like him even more. I've recently started really liking Robert, Robert Lowell. Who's great? Shakespeare's sonnets are wonderful. Shakespeare's Things, pretty good. And yeah, uh, I really like John Donne. I will often find myself just listening to his holy sonnets on mm-hmm. a loop while I'm driving long distances. You'll find poets that speak to you, and you won't know why sometimes, but sometimes it'll be because of your past, your childhood, whatever it is. But go out and explore. It's a wonderful, wild world of lots. And we have all sorts of recommendations here we could give you. But that's poetry and how it functions. That's the craft of poetry. So it deals with the sound, and the sound really is the complicated part of poetry. If you really want to understand how poetry works. Now, what's frustrating to people is that often the sound adds nothing to the meaning, right? Mm. It's It can add to the meaning, and it often does, but it really frustrates people, and they don't like it that, 
or they don't want to spend time understanding, well, this poet's working this way because he's using troches here, and right. instead of an I am here, and he's breaking the rules here, he's not rhyming here when he should be rhyming here, so what's he doing? And all these sorts of things that are very, poetry can be a technical craft, but it's mm. it's part of the fun. I think it kind of demystifies poetry to realize that about it, though. That really, in the end, it is a craft. Right. And that there is a way that poets go about using the craft to mean something. I think that's helpful. It's not just some something. Spontaneous emotion remembered in solitude or whatever that is that Wordsworth said, even though he was the king of the ballad form and used almost always iams and rhymes. Spontaneous me. Yeah. Well, I think if we have any more to say about poetry, we should say it on another episode because we are over an hour now. Yeah. And I think people got their linear poetry episode and I'm more than happy to have given it to them. Yeah, yeah. it was fun. Um, Robert and Rhonda, <laughs> the Ooh. lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. I will say the name and then you guys have to say a line that rhymes with it. Oh, okay. To create a massive, awesome donor shout out poem. <laughs> oh boy. And I will try and make it easy for you. Robert and Rhonda, the birds of love. Like two white, wonderful turtle doves. Little Anthony's Cigar Store. Smoke and smoke and smoke some more. Yeah, it's good. The inscrutable Chelsea. Or no, is Chelsea inscrutable? No, Jenny no. Z is inscrutable. Chelsea is immortal. Yeah. Yeah. The, immor- the immortal Chelsea C. Chelsea E. Yeah, sorry. Chelsea E. The immortal Chelsea E. Who is not E, but C, you see. <laughs> Jimmy Beam and Annie Oakley. <laughs> <laughs> Love that you aren't a Folkly. <laughs> <laughs> Lily of the Valley, yeah. <laughs> Lily of the Valley, yeah. Is there anything that rhymes with yeah? <laughs> I was trying to make it easier than Valley. Maybe Valley would be easier, though. Lily of Valley the... that contains the Lily. I mean, Valley, she, you've got Rally. She listens to us, Valley, so she is not silly. Sally. Oh, I got something there. Andrew and Esther, the birds of love. You do love birds. I need to Esther, the love birds. And lovers of words. There we go. The inscrutable Jenny Z. How inscrutable could she be? <laughs> and now let's do the Keith Master. <laughs> Keep supporting us faster and faster. Give, him, give us more money faster and faster. Get us to that 750. John and Jill and little Max. Who's <laughs> in no way related to Brandon's favorite Marvel character, Drax. Track. Or K-Pax. K-Pax, yeah. <laughs> uh, David's Mighty Men has trucks. And uses those trucks to make a million bucks. Jay and Katie are cold and love cheese. And the nicest children you ever did seize. <laughs> Adam is so very cool. Sorry, Adam. I need to come up and then remember a cool name for you, but I always forget it. He spends all his time in the swimming pool. That's what I was, yeah, swimming pool. Emily's name is spelled E-M-I-L-Y. Trying to think of a rhyme it just makes me want to sigh. Anthony is so artful, man. He's the biggest booking stan. Nice. Fletcher is... The wizard of your... The wizard of your... Mama. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just live there? <laughs> Fletcher is the wizard Break of... Break the rules. If you want to rhyme, Fletcher is the wizard of yo mama. Of yo mama. <laughs> no, I don't think we do. Of yo mama at the... Grocery store. The rhymes. Seven uh, guard, it makes no sense. Yeah, Jeremy's the dark hooded lord of death. Don't the ever. name that he gets from his uh bad breath. Yeah. 
It's a horrible breath, yeah. <laughs> ah, got him. Got you, Jeremy. That's where I was going. Meredith is so incandescent. Candescent. One thing she's not is luminescent. <laughs> there you go. Mm, I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> Maya! Maya! <laughs> Next. <laughs> That's avant-garde. Right <laughs> that is avant-garde. Uh, Maya deserves No one to break the rules. You break them for Maya. Yeah. Yeah. We'll break the rules for Maya. We'll break the rules for Maya. Hopefully she doesn't die. Ryan and Judy are the kings of... You're going to be the king. You got to... Know how to swings. Get those rings. Get those rings. <laughs> get those rings. Danny is just a dude. Is it mine? Like mm-hmm. Michelangelo, he's... Got attitude. Then there's then DJ... Raphael, he's cool but rude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I wanted. <laughs> then there's DJ Sammy G. Wicca wicca. Breaking knee. Benny is the spouse of Dana. Neither of them are related to Vanna. Nice. Eric and Catherine have little Silas. Doing this makes me want to... Cry less. Cry less. And finally, Professor... (laughs) Finally, Professor X. Riding on a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yay. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. Hey, the booking was performed by Brandon, Jake, and myself. You can go to patreon.com forward slash the booking to support this fine work. Sign up for a roared level. Now, we are still in the month of June, which means you still have time to support us. And Brandon, what happens if they support us? Oh, Jake. If they get us to 700, it's 700, right? 750. No, I think it's just 700. No, it's oh, we're at 700. It's 750. Well, Jake would want it to be. 500. 750 and 1,000. See if we're anywhere close. 750 is Narnia and 1,000 yeah. is Tolkien. Yeah. Wait a second. I'm verifying this. I'm here. Oh, yep. You're right. You're yeah. right. I thought you were just trying to squirm out of the awesome thing that you're going to have to do. Nope. Which is what? He is going to put on elf ears. Mm-hmm. And he's going to put on an Elvis outfit. Absolutely correct. And he's going to read Chronicles of Narnia and Tolkien Elvish. That is Absolutely correct. Jake will do all those things. He will do them happily and presumably with much performance gusto. The same gusto that he brings to the donor shoutouts each and every week. And Jake, you looking forward to this? So much. All right. You should say like uh, hubba hubba so much. Or what, what does Elvis say? What's like Elvis's uh, catchphrase? Hunka hunka. Hunka hunka. Burning much. Burning much. Burnin much. Yeah. All right. Thanks People for are almost out of time. The yep. deadline was July. They've got a few weeks or they've Maybe got like a week. A week. Yeah. Get it done, guys. You can do this. You can do this. You've, you're very close. Bye. Bye.